How many of you wore red today in, in remembrance of Pentecost? If you did, why don't you stand up? Anybody have red on? Yeah, we have a few people. I didn't announce it last week because I've done it for seven years in a row, and I figured, let's just see who would show up with red on for Pentecost. If you have red on today, you can have a free cup of coffee on me, okay? Help yourselves. Help yourselves. Pentecost. We celebrate Pentecost in a very real way here every Sunday. But this is the official Pentecost day. And I thank you, John and, and uh, Shane, for uh, bringing a little levity to that. Uh, you can find the Pentecost verse in Acts chapter 2. And this afternoon, it'd be good for you to go there, read that, and remember that it was there that the Holy Spirit was poured out on all people. Up until that time, the Holy Spirit had been available for particular people at particular times for particular tasks. But as of Pentecost, he was poured out for everyone. So we are all uh, filled with the Holy Spirit as we accept Jesus as our Savior. Well... Today we start a new series. This is summertime, isn't it? So we're going to start a new summer series. Now we've all seen what happens when a revolutionary party suddenly finds itself in power, haven't we? It's one thing to shout angrily from the, from the sidelines, but it's quite another thing to form a government and try to run a country. All sorts of things, you see, have to be organized and, and dealt with that maybe you hadn't even considered before. First, can this movement really do the basic things better than the predecessor did them? Was it just making a lot of noise or... Uh, whatever it might be that turned out to be hot air. You know, there's a lot of hot air out there these days. Or can it really deliver the goods that it promised? And secondly, can it remain true to itself and its original ideals? They sounded lofty, they sounded great, but can it really remain true to those ideals? You see, Jesus was starting a revolution, all right, but it was a different kind of revolution from the other ones that had bubbled up from time to time before and since he came. And he had to do two things at the same time. Two things at the same time. That sounds kind of impossible. First, he had to show the Jews of his day that this movement that he was a part of was really the fulfillment of all that Israel had believed, that all, all that Israel had longed for. And secondly, he had to show that he and his followers really were living by the new way that he was announcing and introducing to everyone. As we're going to see over and over as we go through the summer series, the tension between those two things was fierce. And even to this day, many people 
many people in our churches still misunderstand it. Some people think of Jesus as a great Jewish teacher without much of, if any, revolution at all in him. Others have seen him as so revolutionary that he had left Judaism behind altogether and he had established something entirely new. Well, he was offering something utterly revolutionary, something to watch, something which he would remain faithful to. But it was, in fact, it was, in fact, the very thing that Israel's whole history, Israel's whole tradition had been pointing to since the beginning of time. This revolution begins with his teachings, with his proclamation. And we begin this summer series today devoted to his most famous teachings. They're sometimes called the Sermon on the Mount. They would more accurately be known as the Sermons on the Mount because most scholars believe that they're a collection of his teachings. In other words, they didn't all take place in one afternoon on a hillside. And I've chosen to call them for our purposes here, messages from the mountain. Now the chronology of the teachings is, is not as important as the amazing content, the content which has astounded even the greatest minds in history ever since. Since Matthew records the most complete account of these messages, we're going to use as our text for most of this summer, mainly the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew chapters 5 through 7. And since some years ago we spent three whole years working through the book of Matthew, this summer series will be somewhat limited in scope so that we can get through it in the summer. In the summer of 2015, a couple of years ago, I presented a series which I titled Beatitudes, Keys to a Blessed Life. Many of you remember that. Some of you have your key with you. Cookie, you have around your neck today? Usually you do where I covered the Beatitudes in detail and gave an application to our present-day life for each Beatitude. And if you'd like to go deeper into those yourself, you can find them, like John was saying, on our podcast archives online or someday soon on the Renovation Vineyard Church app. So today, today we begin with Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 through 20. But before I do, let's ask for guidance. Father, I thank you for this day, this Pentecost Sunday, when you sent your Holy Spirit to guide, to direct, to instruct to empower each one of us so that we could do the things that you would call us to do. We can't do them without you. 
Thank you, God, for your Holy Spirit. Thank you for this day, this Sunday morning, the Sabbath set aside for us to come and meet collectively, corporately, to worship you. You inhabit the praises of your people, so we welcome your presence here this morning. Move and have your way in our hearts and in our minds as we listen to your words and as we uh, chew on the, 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 the ideas that you're going to give to each one of us individually. And help us to apply this scripture, not just to hear it, but to also apply it to our lives. We thank you for this day. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Matthew chapter 5, beginning at verse 13. Jesus says, You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness... How can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled by men. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus' theme throughout his entire ministry was the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven, the rule and the reign of God, and the fact that in Jesus himself, it had broken into our present time. He had ushered in the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, it's sometimes called here. And things were going to be different from now on. This passage that we just read is a doorway or a, 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 a gateway maybe to the rest of the messages from the mountain. Jesus is calling Israel of his day to be a people that, has, that God has called to be um, different, set apart, uh, looked up to by other nations around. 
What he says here can be applied not just to them, but to all Christians, all Christ followers throughout all generations following. Jesus has called us as Christ followers to be the salt of the earth. But if truth be known, we're behaving like everybody else. There's no difference in us. To help us understand this further, let's take a look at the uses of salt. I don't know whether you've thought about this or not. Salt. I mean, just salt, something we use every day. Salt is used for, first of all, preserving. It's used for preserving. At the time Jesus of Jesus and until very recently even, um, salt was the most common of all preservatives. I grew up in a not in, on a farm, but outside the city limits, and we had hogs. And it was always the tradition that on the coldest day in February, I don't know how my grandfather always knew which was the coldest day in February, but on the coldest day in February, we killed a hog and took it to the butcher to have it you know, made into all these other things that we wouldn't even eat today. Uh, but one of the things that I remember most vividly was the ham hock that came home, the leg that came home. And we had these, these uh, uh, boxes that were a little bit bigger than this in, into which we would pour salt and then lay three or four of these hams and then cover them with salt completely and leave them there until summertime. That's country ham, people. If you're from up north, I'm sorry you don't like it. But that's country ham, and it's, it's mighty good, and there's nothing better than red-eye gravy. We use that salt to preserve that ham. You could take it out of there in the summertime, and we would hang it on the back porch. It wouldn't spoil. It was, it was preserved. At the time of Jesus, there weren't any refrigerators. There weren't any deep freezers. The Mediterranean, maybe you know, is, is mostly tropical. It's pretty doggone hot over there. And in such a climate and without any cold storage at all, salt was used to keep things from going bad, from becoming rotten, particularly meat. Salt was able to resist spoilage and keep putrefaction away. So, when Jesus said that those who followed him were the salt of the earth, he was actually teaching that the world, apart from God, is rotten because of sin. It's rotten. But that through him and the power of his Holy Spirit, Christ followers are able to actually and actually obliged to have a preserving and a purifying effect on the world around them. That's our job. And Jesus says the Christ follower is to be a preserving force wherever God has placed him. You don't have to be a preacher in a church. Wherever you are, you're to be a preserving force. You're to be the salt in that place. Think about it. 
Salt never did any good sitting on one side of the room and the meat over on this side of the room. To be effective, you have to take the salt and rub it in to the meat. And Christ followers must allow God to rub them into the world, wherever they are. He's going to put you in places where you're going to be rubbed into the world. You may not like it. They may not like you. But that's the way the, the uh, preservation takes place. Christ followers must allow God to rub them into the world. But George, what does that mean, you're asking? And I'm glad you asked. It means they have to be Christ followers at work. It means they have to be Christ followers in politics. It means they have to be Christ followers at home. It means they have to be Christ followers on the golf course. It means they have to be Christ followers at leggings parties. Is that what you call them? <laughs> they must be Christ followers wherever else that their normal life would take them. And I should probably add one fact that's well known in the, in the medical world. If a body doesn't give off salt through perspiration, what happens to it? It starts retaining water, doesn't it? And as it retains water, it becomes bloated. In the same way, the church will become bloated and desperately unhealthy if its salt is not dispersed into the work of preservation in the world. So the first use of salt is preserving. Second use of salt is this, providing flavor. It provides flavor. Perhaps you found, and I hope that you have, that the pleasures of this world are unsatisfying without Jesus. They just don't satisfy. They feel for a time, of course they do. They feel good. They're things we like. They're enjoyable. They're pleasures. Sex, drugs, rock and roll. But they're all sort of kind of like a, uh, uh, a Chinese dinner. <laughs> a Chinese dinner. And soon you're hungry again. It just doesn't fill you. Those who pursue such things are doomed to a constant and relentless search for that which never satisfies. It'll never satisfy the true hunger and the desire that your soul has because your soul is an eternal thing. And Christ followers are to be there and to be present as those who know something or someone different and whose satisfaction in Jesus Christ alone can be seen in the world around them. <clears throat> I think all too often, <laughs> the opposite is the case, isn't it? 
non-Christians have looked at Christians and they've said, what a pitiful bunch of people. I'd never want to be like them. They're just a bunch of hypocrites. Oliver Wendell Holmes, who was a lawyer and a jurist and a Supreme Court justice, said, I might have entered the ministry if certain clergymen I knew had not looked and acted so much like undertakers. Robert Louis Stevenson, who was an author and a poet, once wrote in his diary, as if he was expressing a most exceptional fact, I've been to church today, and I am not depressed. Those are honest remarks by honest people who have seen pitiful Christianity at work. And if they or their followers are to see something different, then they must see it in the only place where it can and will be seen, in us. They've got to see it in us. They must see it in you, and they must see it in me. I mean, do you go around with a long face as if the world and everything you know is depressing? Or do you go around as one who has the Holy Spirit living within you? Would anyone know the difference? So salt is used for preserving... And salt is used for providing flavor. And thirdly, salt is used for making one thirsty. Man, makes you thirsty, doesn't it? That country ham, you can't have country ham without drinking a bunch of water afterwards, you know? When a Christ follower comes into, into the life of a person who is far from God, that Christ follower should exude joy and satisfaction and peace that makes that person look up and say, wow, I want some of that. I like that. Where can I get some of that? Let me ask you this. Can that be said of you? Do you Make anybody thirsty for Jesus Christ? Do you? John seven thirty seven says, this is Jesus speaking again. If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, streams of living water will flow within him. You see, Jesus alone can satisfy the greatest thirst of the human soul. Nothing else will ever do it. And your responsibility and my responsibility as Christ followers is not to satisfy the thirst ourselves, but to point other people to Jesus who will satisfy that thirst. If you do that, the scripture says that out of you will flow his life and his character and others will see him and they will be satisfied. Because of you, 
Oh, one more thing. One more thing. Salt is the most common thing on earth, or one of the most common things. I can't say it's the most common. One of the most common things. It's found everywhere, isn't it? Salt. So when Jesus said, you are the salt of the earth, he was saying, I delight in using common things. I, I, I delight in using little things. He, he could have said, but he didn't, you're the gold of the earth. He could have said, you're the uranium of the earth. He didn't even say, you're the lead of the earth. Although sometimes I think Christians resemble lead more than they would like to admit. He said, you are the salt of the earth. Just a common substance. And it's from common things, from the weak, from the foolish, from the despised, from the things that are not, that God brings the greatest glory to his name. We see it all the way through Scripture, don't we? When God made man in the Garden of Eden, what did he use? Gold? Silver? Iron? No. He used dust. But he breathed into the dust the divine breath of life. And when God spoke to Moses in the desert to call him to come forth to be the deliverer of his people, Israel, from Egypt, how did he reveal himself? In a dazzling display of lightning and thunder? In an overpowering vision? A dream? No, he revealed himself in a burning desert bush. When God called David to deliver the Israelites from the Philistines, remember Goliath? Did he use Saul's armor? No. He used a slingshot and a few small stones, pebbles. And when Jesus was born, God didn't allow him to be born in the courts of the Caesars or born to a woman of noble ancestry. No, he he used a peasant girl, probably illiterate, and she gave birth to Jesus in a stable. God uses small things, common things, insignificant people, common people. God uses you. God uses me that he might do his work in the, wor- in the world through his Holy Spirit. As a matter of fact, the smaller you become, the more effective his work in you will be. Less of you, more of him. I mean, this is, this is revolutionary stuff we're talking about here. Jesus was, and he is still, a rebel rouser. That's what he is. As a matter of fact, the big idea is this. Jesus came to turn the religious world upside down and inside out. Everything that they thought was right, he says, 
We need to take this to a different level. We're going to do this a different way, a better way. You say, love your neighbors, but I say, love your enemies. And how radical, how revolutionary is a thought like that? Matthew 5, 17, remember? He says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to do away with them, but to fulfill them. And he says, whoever practices and teaches these commands. Notice he doesn't say whoever believes in these commands. I think we can... We can sit here and nod our heads and say, yeah, I believe what he's saying. Yeah, that's, yeah. yeah, that's good. Yeah, I buy into that. He did not say whoever believes these commands. He said whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Is that what you want to be called? That's where his teaching is going to take us. We're going to have to listen to him. We're going to have to act out the things that he has us to try. It's a different way. It's going to feel uncomfortable. You're going to get out of, outside of your comfort zone once in a while. But you're going to find the pathway to being great in the kingdom of heaven. Here's the first action step I want you to take. I want you to think, how can I make, and I put a blank there, think of that person. How can I make him or her thirsty for Jesus today? How are you going to do that? See, the revolution is on here at Renovation. And I want you, each one of you, to be a rebel rouser. So I want you to join us each week of this summer as we learn to rebel rouse the Jesus way. We can do that. We can turn the world upside down and inside out. You willing to try? Are you? Wow, this is like, have we poured salt on the group? <laughs> Try. Next week we'll move on to the, to the next sep- section of scripture here uh, with uh, <laughs> murder and reconciliation. That ought to be interesting. Father, we thank you for your word. It's never changing. It's ever true. It's the place where we can run, run to for the answer to any problem in our lives, for any situation that we might be facing. We thank you for, once again, for giving us the Holy Spirit to empower us, to, to uh, encourage us daily, to uh, pour your love into our hearts so that we might be able to love the unlovely, to love our enemies, to love those who have 
hurt us. To love those who have done wrong to the ones that we love. We can't do that without you. Thank you for your teachings. Lord, apply these to our lives today and in the days to come. In Jesus' name, amen.